welcome, C4, to week five and We the People. Are you glad to be at church this morning? All right, good, good. I want to take a moment again to welcome many of you watching and listening online at cottages around the world. We're just glad that you're here this morning. Well, my wife called me this week and said, John, get to the church. I have a gift for you. That's an unusual thing, so I came quickly. And uh, as I got into the car with Dave, uh, she presented me this shirt. And she said, John, I don't usually do this, but you shall wear this shirt this Sunday. And I said, yes. Now, let me tell you why I'm wearing this shirt this morning. This is a declaration to you, the family I love. I am leaving all of you. I am going on my vacation right after this sermon. And you, can you guess where I am going? Oh, yes, the East Coast. Yes, here I come. And this is my declaration to you. I am going to go hang out with my wife and my kids, read a book, and I am going to eat lots of lobster. Yes, that is what I'm going to do. More and more. And since my family owns a house and a little island where they fish for these things, I'm going to get cheaper than all of you. And that's all I want to say about that. So uh, it's interesting. I was reflecting because I'm about to go with my family for a 14 to 15 hour drive with kids. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. And uh, as I'm going to go, something's going to happen. I'm going to come to a border with the United States of America, and there will be, hopefully, some friendly people there from Homeland Security. And as I arrive at the border, this is what they will do. And all of you who travel know this. They will say, could I please have your what? Passport. Right here, this. They're going to ask me for something like this, a passport. And they're going to check out who I am and where I come from, and then they're going to put it in a little scanner to make sure I'm not a troublemaker. Now, it's really interesting. Have you thought about the word passport before? We say it all the time. It means it gives you a pass into someone else's port. That's where it comes from. Have you thought about that? And so this is a passport. This actually identifies who I am, where I was born, where I come from, who I belong to, and if I have a right to travel somewhere else. I want you to have this as an image burned in your mind as I preach this morning. Because this is a phenomenal example of the heartbeat of what Paul is trying to get across to a different community that we read about in the book of Galatians. If you've got a Bible, virtually, physically, we're good with that either way. Could you turn to Galatians 2? Because what Paul is going to begin to emphatically, with great joy, declare that Jesus Christ is the only passport that moves you from death to life, from one country to another. He moves you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And interestingly, it's Jesus himself and his work that declares where we come from, when we were born, who we belong to, and if we have the right to enter into the new country. Amen? And so Jesus is our passport. Now, as I said, this is week five or six in our main summer series, We the People. Uh, we've chosen, we, we, we have shared, uh, we've decided to end this ministry year with our theme, Believe, in this series because we not only want to know this year who God is and believe on Him, we also desperately want to know what He has already done over us. Not only having a clear understanding of who the God is that we worship, but actually knowing what He's done in us, over us, and for us in the now and the not yet. Our story in Galatians 2, interestingly, starts not in a nice place. It actually starts with a lot of pain. It starts with conflict. Actually, it starts with broken promises. 
If you read the book of Acts, which is the narrative history of the church between the first 20 and 40 years, probably 30 years, the church is exploding far beyond what anyone ever expected. Jews, that's Hebraic Jews, were working with Greek Jews, which was uh, tough at best. And then suddenly they start hanging out with Samaritans, the ones they called dogs, the ones that they considered half-breeds. And suddenly these ancient enemies now are meeting together and actually eating in each other's homes. But then more happens. Even not just half-Jews and and Jews of different backgrounds are now together, even non-Jews now also start meeting Jesus Christ. And this church thing is overcoming suspicion and culture, different worldviews and race. If you read the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, Jews, Greek Jews, Samaritans, Greeks, Africans, Romans, Latins, they are all beginning to be included in God's family because they've all met the same person and they've all got the same passport. This, of course, was and always will be the agenda of God. What worldview? I preached this last week at 905. What worldview provides such peace and forgiveness and love and hope like Jesus? God declares to a broken world that he is no respecter of persons. The obstacle of age, religious background, race, ethnic origin, economic and educational status, physical condition, no matter what you have done in your history, it will never be a big enough barrier to stop you from joining the family of God in and through Jesus. Now, in the middle of this explosion, this epicenter of faith, this earthquake that's shaking the Roman Empire in the time, multiple leaders are called up by God. Two of them we know very well. One was Peter, the other was Paul. These two are like the heavyweights of the movement. One grew up in Galilee and walked with Jesus. The other one grew up in the metropolitan city of Tarsus. He was a Greek Jew, the other a Hebraic Jew. Both of them very different. One highly, highly educated. The other, not so much. And yet both of them grew up as good Jews. They studied the law. They were trained in the spirituality of Judaism. They were taught to revere God's word, to live by God's word. And they believed in their core, both of them, that they were made right with God because they were Jews. They were right with God because their nation had the promises of God and others didn't. And also they were made right with God because they had the Old Testament and they were trying to keep it. All of those things made you okay with the one true only God. But then something had happened to both of them in very different ways. They both had met Jesus. And both of them realized that Jesus was the God that they worshipped incarnate. And he was the Messiah. And everything they trusted in suddenly didn't look so good. Jews and non-Jews begin encountering Jesus. Things that had never been seen in generations, in decades, in in world history started happening where where slaves and masters started calling each other brother and sister. In the middle of that, something terrible begins to take place. Like the movement could be actually snuffed out right when it's beginning. Some Jewish Christians got really concerned when a bunch of non-Jewish people started becoming Christians. And, and they were really concerned because it seemed too easy. It's what Bruxy was talking about last week. And so they started saying things like this. Well, fine. We're okay with non-Jews becoming Christians. I suppose that's God's heart. We'll have to change our hearts. But here's the deal. Not only do you need to accept Jesus, you also have to become religiously Jewish, and then you're really a Christian. They were called Judaizers. And they start getting more and more power. Now, Peter 
has been on the forefront at this moment of including non-Jews in God's family. Read the book of Acts. He's the one in Cornelius' house, not Paul. He's the one who's hanging out with people and eating food with non-Jews, which, by the way, was forbidden by oral law. But then this group starts saying, Peter, you've got this wrong, and he starts listening to this nattering, and he goes, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe this isn't really God's heart. And so what does he do? He begins to step back from his brothers and sisters who aren't ethnically like him. Well, Paul hears about this, and he's not pleased. And so now the WWF of theology is about to happen. Paul, it's UHF. Like Paul says, no, 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 no. We are never going back to what we've been saved from. And so Paul travels to confront Peter. Can you imagine being in that room? Everyone's, you know, everyone's been like ready to tweet. Who's going to say it? Like this is unbelievable. This is the two major leaders of our early movement And one's coming to say to the other one, you've got this wrong. Galatians 2.11 begins the conversation. I'm going to read it from the message just so we can get the flavor. Later when Peter came to Antioch, I had a face-to-face confrontation with him because he was clearly out of line. How many of you could say that to Peter? Guy, you got it wrong. I don't think so. Here's the situation. Earlier before certain persons had come from James, Peter regularly ate with non-Jews. And he means, by the way, those who accepted Christ. But when that conservative group came from Jerusalem, he cautiously pulled back and put as much distance as he could manage between himself and his non-Jewish friends. That's how fearful he was of this conservative Jewish clique that had been pushing the old system of circumcision. Unfortunately, Paul writes, the rest of the Jews in that church in Antioch joined in the hypocrisy. So even Barnabas was swept along in the charade. Now you go, well, why does he mention that? Barnabas was Paul's mentor. Barnabas grew him up in the Christian faith. But when I saw that they were maintaining a steady straight course, not maintaining a steady straight course according to the message, I spoke up to Peter in front of everyone. If you, a Jew, live like a non-Jew when you're not being observed by the watchdogs of Jerusalem, what right do you to have require, what right do you have to require non-Jews to conform to Jewish customs just to make a favorable impression on your old Jerusalem cronies? He basically says, give me a break. You're afraid and you know they're wrong and you know what Jesus has done. You walked with him, Jesus, way more than I did. You were there than when he hung out with Samaritans. You were there when he crossed over and even was with non-Jews. You always knew that this was his goal. Give this up. Because those people who aren't like us are now like us because we're all equal in Jesus. Paul, at this moment in Galatians, begins now. He moves from the confrontation to theologically unpack why this matters and why this needs to be fought for. Galatians is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament, and he wants to settle this right now because he wants a great freedom. We sang about it, a great freedom in the movement, never to be hindered by something they've been saved from. And as Paul theologically unpacks this for us, and as we digest it, listen very closely, because not only will our faith become so crystal clear this morning, something even more takes place. See, our DNA, our, 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 our identity is rooted in what Paul is saying. The whole theme of we the people, knowing the truth, so lies lose power, is found right here in Paul's teaching. And so this is how he starts in Galatians 2.15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. I just want to stop right there. Those six little words, 
that he starts with have so much behind them that many of us miss in 2013. Paul starts by saying, okay, listen, we who are Jews by birth, this is our story. We're blessed. Sorry, everyone else, we are. I mean, we're really blessed. I'm not saying there's no value of being a Jew. Actually, we have unbelievable value. We were elected out of all the nations. No one else. God chose us. And not only that, we actually have the promises of God in our history. We have had the very presence of the living God, the Shekinah glory. And oh, by the way, we actually have the written word of God. We have unimaginable privilege, but we have immense responsibility. Yes, we're Jews. And no, we weren't born sinful Gentiles. Now, that little phrase, sinful Gentiles, was an unbelievably common phrase in the day by Jews. Non-Jews, so I'm one of those people, that would be my category, were considered sinful by Jews because A, I didn't have God's law, B, I didn't obey God's law, and C, I didn't know that there was one true living God. I believed in lots of gods or no God at all. So my position was, according to a Jew, a sinner. The phrase was common. It was positional. It was religious. But as you read the Times, it gets a little prideful and actually a little racist. Much of the time, rabbis would call Gentiles dogs. Some rabbis even prayed prayers like, Oh God, thank you so much that you didn't let me be born one of them. And a woman, by the way, both. And then God shows up and he says, You've missed it. And the reason why I called you as a Jewish nation was to be a light to everyone. And you think that it's about you. See, Peter and Paul have realized something, that the separations and all the stuff they'd heard that was true and not true in the mix and the religion and the politics and the racism and all of it mixed together, they suddenly believed that the separation and the gulf that they thought was there actually wasn't. That is why later Paul would write another church in Rome and he would say, what is our conclusion then, Romans 3.9? Are we better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and non-Jews, that's Gentiles, are all alike under sin. You notice he says in Romans here, not sins, but sin. He says that we are all under the dynamic of sin, all under the power of sin. We are all controlled by sin. Another said if sin was the color blue, then everything in the universe would have a shade of blue on it. A funeral director, I quoted this a few years ago, a 35-year veteran in the funeral services, gives a great insightful picture of the commonality of all of us. He says, I've had every age, every race, every nationality, every size, and every religion represented on my coroner's table. And when you cut each human being open, big or small, and look inside, they all look the same. And let me reassure you, it is never pretty. One famous Russian poet got it right when he penned the words, I do not know what the heart of a bad person looks like. But I know what the heart of a good person looks like, and it is terrible. Paul says we've all sinned. All of us are condemned. All of us are under the wrath of, of God. All of us have a heart of sin, the very religious and unreligious, the kind and the unkind, the wicked, babies, children, teens, young adults, adults, those who are born in a hospital at this very moment while I'm speaking, and those who are dying at this moment, we are all under the dynamic of sin. See, Paul's point is, yes, some of us were born as privileged Jews, and no, we weren't born like those, in parentheses, Gentile sinners. But oh, here's the truth we all now believe, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified 
by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We're no different than, we, than those we used to look our noses down upon. We've now come to understand we've been enlightened by heaven itself, that we are made right with God. We are justified through Jesus of Nazareth, not our position, our possession of the law, or obeying the law, or doing the law thing. And by the way, when you see the phrase, the law here, he means the whole deal. He means the ceremonial law, he means the actual full law, and he means the oral law written by the best scholars of the day. And Paul comes along and he says, and by the way, he's got like three PhDs in the law. And he comes along and says, no, no, we are never, ever made right with a holy God and a loving God by having that. Let me just flip back to Romans real quick for a second when he says in Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. See, whether it's about possession or performance or, or position, Paul says you can never be saved by having the law, knowing the law, or obeying the law. You are never saved by what you do. But the law sure does one significant thing. It tells you you're in trouble. It was Martin Luther so long ago, who stood up and said these words about the role of the law. He said the principal point of the law, I'd say one of the principal points, is in true Christian theology is to make people actually not better, but worse. That is to say that we see our sin in the law. We are humbled, hopefully, and terrified and bruised and broken, not to destroy us, but to comfort us and to move us towards Jesus. As I preached in the Roman series a few years ago, when was the last time as a Christian you said to God, thank you for the law. Thank you for your relentless, loving confrontation of my problem so you could actually set me free. Through the law, we are not saved, but we become conscious of our condition. That's why Paul says back in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one, no one, no one ever will be justified. See, this is true for everybody. Do you see what he says? So we too... This is true for the most religious person on earth and the semi-religious person. Paul is like the incarnation of what the best religious person would be. Peter is a semi-religious slash political slash violent person. And then there's the world of non-Jews and the pagan worshiper and the idol worshiper. All of us that make up our broken world. All the best of us and the worst of us. The most secular, atheist, agnostic, and religious. The spectacularly good and the bad and the evil. Jew and non-Jew. Paul's point is this. Every Everyone needs a passport, and his name is Jesus. See, there it is, by the way, everyone. That is the most fundamental truth of our movement. It is the most beautiful, freeing thing if you say yes to it, and it is the most offensive, nagging thing if you say no to it. Paul says, we have faith in Christ Jesus. We believe. We have given assent we have trusted in, we have surrendered to, we have given full commitment to Jesus the Christ. But let me just stop right there for a moment and ask you the question. And by the way, if you've done church for a long time, I'd encourage you to listen right now. He says, we have put faith in Jesus Christ. We have believed in Jesus. We spent this whole year talking about belief. 
Let me re-remind you or introduce you again to the true idea of believing in a Christian sense. See, faith is not a one-time thing. I love when one scholar said this, faith is the initial and the continual response of trust in and obedience to Jesus by a person for the purpose of acceptance with God. William Barclay in the 60s, some of you will know that name, wrote this, faith is complete trust and complete surrender to Jesus Christ. It is total acceptance of all of what Jesus said, all of Jesus offered, and all that he is. So here's my question this morning. Do you actually have faith like that? See, it doesn't matter that you prayed a prayer at 3 or at 12 or 20 because faith is evidenced. If you pray to prayer and there is no evidence of Jesus in your life, there is a great chance you don't know him. The great strength of evangelicalism is that we have taken the gospel to the world. The great problem we have is we say if you said a prayer, even if there's no evidence, don't worry, you're in. No. Faith in Jesus is evidenced by continual faith. I'm not talking about struggle because I said all the time to youth, when I was a youth pastor, if you're struggling, don't worry, you're alive. Dead people don't struggle. But if there's no evidence of a continual trust and obedience to Jesus, there is a greater problem to be had. Paul is saying that Jesus, not the law, is, is the agent of salvation. Jesus is our passport. Jesus is our key. Jesus is our swipe card. Jesus is the password. No one else and nothing else except him. He's the only way you move from one dark country into a light one, from death to light. But when you trust in him, Paul says you get justified. I mean, <laughs> Hear the power of this little Christian word. We are in good standing with God. We're made righteous with God. We are acquitted. We were guilty, but God, by the work of Jesus, declares us not guilty. And it's not just acquitted for a moment. The idea is a past tense idea that keeps on going. We are put into right relationship with God. All sins, future, past, present, are accounted for, dealt with, removed. Jesus showed up and he paid off your mortgage. Isn't that a good thing? Jesus legally has assumed our guilt and bore the results and he did it on the cross. Every Christian on earth, famous or not, has a new status and a new position we stand before a holy God and a loving God, and we are no longer accountable for our sinfulness in the positional sense. Why? Because God ignored it? No. Because God passed over it? No. Because he put it on his son. Not by any deeds we've done, but by the only deed done by Jesus. As I preached a few weeks ago, we have eternal mercy, perpetual mercy. God the Father forever will look upon the nail marks on Jesus' wrists and on his feet. And as he sees them forever, think about this, and as Jesus, our high priest, prays for us for eternity, God's wrath will never come back. It's not just something that happened on the it is perpetually, forever, not being re-crucified, but Jesus' work has eternal consequence. And that is why it is unbelievably arrogant and unbelievably sinful to raise our hands to heaven and say, oh God, look what I have done. 
human merit in this place and in this space is idolatry of the worst kind, is the elevation of humans to the place of Jesus. Every religion on earth declares emphatically, supernaturally, mystically, that it is up to us to work with God or to be beside God or to do something to impress Him and then He will like us. If you meditate long enough, if you fast long enough, if you pray five times a day, if you say confession more, if you do your rosary, if you're nice to older or younger people, and the list goes on and on and on. If you're good enough, kind enough, religious enough, and even secular people say if we're more scientific enough, if we have more technology, if we just all want to sing along and be happy. No, no, no. It's all the same sin. It's all idolatry. It's lifting ourselves up to God and say, you have to accept us because we are good. And Paul says, no, 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 never. Don't you understand? The power of the gospel is that Jesus did it for us. As Paul is writing this, he knows what his critics are about to say. I mean, he intuitively knows this. And so immediately before they can say anything, he he responds. See, he can hear them. The Judaizers are going to start saying, well, fine, Paul. If it's only faith in Jesus, and Jesus is our passport, and he's the password, and he's the key, and it's just we can believe in Jesus, and everything's going to be... No one's going to live a holy life. Are you joking me? This is the best form of faith ever produced. I've got fire insurance, Paul. I got a key. I didn't even have to earn it, so I'm going to live like hell, and I'm going to heaven. You know, pass the ammunition. Really? This, and then they turn around and they say this to Paul. Do you know what you're going to do? Because we love Jesus too, Paul, by the way. You're going to make Jesus the worst and biggest promoter of sin. You're going to actually make him the welcomer of sin. He's not only going to say sin's okay. Jesus is going to become a minister of wickedness and an agent of sin. Because easy believism means that Jesus does everything. I do nothing. And who cares? So what do you say to that, Paul? Paul turns around and says, oh, boys, you got this wrong. He says, verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners. Let me just stop there. Oh, by the way, guys and ladies, um, there, there is no difference between us and the people you keep mocking. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. Meeting Jesus, he says, doesn't move you from the law to sin. He said, just think about this for a moment. Think on who Jesus was and who he is. He's God in flesh. Think about what he taught. Think about what he did. Jesus didn't come to make us okay with sin. He came and died so sin would be overcome. He said, read, read and hear the stories of Jesus. Jesus was never okay with sin. Actually, he made it more difficult. We used to say adultery was you actually had to get in the bed with someone. He said, if you look at them lustfully, you've committed adultery. Are you joking me? Here's the point. When you meet Jesus Christ and you experience his love and you are radically transformed, he says, you're going to become more and more like Jesus. Jesus, if he's really in you, is not going to promote sin. You're going to look actually more and more holy. See, actually in Galatians 5, then Paul says, Guess who moves into you when you say yes to Jesus? His holy what? The Holy Spirit. And, and what does the Holy Spirit produce in everyday Christian lives? Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's, there's no law like this. You think that's sin? 
He says, when Jesus moves into your life, you over time are going to look radically different because you can't meet the living God and stay the same. Now, does that mean as Christians, because Jesus is in us, we don't have to obey the law anymore? It's all good. No. Every one of us in this place are called to a holy life because of what has positionally been done for us. We, we should not steal or covet or lie. We shouldn't commit adultery. We should, God, we should have God-given rest. We, we should not take His name in vain. We should worship no other God except Him. All of that's still applicable for Christians. But here's the thing. The law and spiritual disciplines and why you gave today and when we sing and when we read our Bible and when we go to Connect Group, none of that is to get into heaven and none of it is to meet God. It's now maintaining a relationship He gave us. Let me say that again. When you've met the living God of heaven and earth, it is all His work. You get married to him, the wedding ring is on, but after you're in, now the relationship is maintained. The health is there when we obey what he's commanded us. But see, if there's no life change in you, if you are 65 today and you're no different than when you were 15 or 17, if you said, oh, I was a Christian and I've been a Christian for a while, but there, listen, if there is no growing holiness in your life, then you have to ask yourself the question, have I met him? Paul says, if you've met Jesus, oh, things will change. Things will change. Paul keeps going. He says, if I rebuild what I destroy, then I really would be a lawbreaker. I'm never going back to the law. You can never, ever, ever, ever tell me to reintroduce law-keeping as essential to getting to know God. Human merit will never be enough to overcome the gulf between us and an all-knowing, amen, all-powerful, all-seeing, holy God. The law, thank you, the law no longer has claim, no longer has control. The law is no longer the way to know God. The The law is so last season, Paul is saying. It's the avocado harvest gold fridge from the 70s. We're not going back. We're just not going back. It looked amazing when you bought it, but it's not. And let me tell you why. Because it does not bring life. He says, through the law, I died to the law, so I might live for God. Verse 17, he says, look, Jesus is the passport. It is finished. It is over. Once you cross over to Jesus, it's once for all. You're never, ever allowed to go back to the idea that by what you do, God gets impressed. He says, I have realized the love of God, how wide, how high, how deep is the love of God through Jesus. And let me remind you of who Paul is and was. I mean, Paul was the great religious mind of his movement. Like I jokingly said, he probably had the equivalent of one to three PhDs in Jewish thinking. This guy was deeply religious. Like I said in the Roman series, he had the Pulitzer for writing, the Oscar for acting, the Victoria Cross for military bravery, the gold medal in the Olympics, the Nobel Peace Prize for economics. Like, this guy was the guy you called on. And he turns around and he says, I am never going back to all of that because what I thought was value does not actually produce what I thought it promised. And so at this moment, at that moment, as he's writing, he suddenly pens his life verse. And this one, by the way, you should memorize, highlight, circle, hashtag, whatever. See, this is his identity. 
This is his purpose. This is his experience. This is the reason for being and living. This is not just cognitive knowing. This is believing. This is him. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ obeyed the law perfectly. And this idea that the law can ever get me to know God is done. Human achievement is so over. It no longer gets me excited. I spent my whole life working hard to please God. I was religious, faithful, good. And let me tell you, everyone, it left me empty. It left my life in agony. And I was always trying. I was always doing, and it was never enough. Another hill, another wall to climb. Always driven, always tired, always burnt out. And all this supposed work of God left me in one place. Do you know where it is? With me. Can I say that again? All of Paul's tireless work left him by himself and not with God. Paul had plumbed the depths of self-working and found that there was only bondage and sinfulness and he could never get free. He said I, in his scriptures that he wrote, I'm full of unchecked anger and zeal. I'm a man who knew about God but did not really know him. I was good on the outside and I was dead on the inside. But then Jesus came into my life. Oh, how he came into my life. And I'm never going back again. I no longer live. Of course, Paul existed. Of course, he had his personality. Trust me, he had personality. But he said, my purpose is about Jesus. My life is about Jesus. My trust is in the Son of God. And then he says these words, and you notice they're personal for him. Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? Because he personally told me so. He took my bullet. He came for me. The intention of Scripture in Paul's story is so unbelievable because Paul would say to us in different words that in all of his arrogance, in all of his lies, that he thought he was okay with God, and he was good enough and strong enough, God literally cut through that forest of lies because he could never do it and literally burned the forest down and came right to his eyes and said, you are not what you think you are. And Jesus rescued him from himself. And Paul says, I'm never going back. And Peter, you can't either. And none of us can ever go back because if we do, He says this in such strong, emphatic terms. I do not, I will not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for what? Say it. No, louder. Nothing. See, here's what I've already referred to. This is the great problem. 85 to 90% of the world is deeply religious today. 10% is secular And yet, Jesus' claims violate both camps. Seculars declare we'll just be good enough by ourselves. We don't need that. Paul says, not true. And the religious world in all of its forms and all of its nuances says the same thing. We'll be okay because we're good enough. And Paul says, no, not true. Freedom and grand offense. In the middle of that conversation... Our identity as Christians is crystal clear. What do we learn from Paul's interaction with Peter in the Scriptures? Well, here's what I want to leave you with today. A few things. Number one is this. 
If there is any doubt in your mind, whether you are a Christian or a Christian in name only, not a Christian or been a Christian for a while, if there's any doubt in your mind of the gospel, let me share it one last time again. It is this. All the promises of this passage, all of what Jesus has done, the love for us, his sacrifice for us, is in response, A, because he loves us, and B, because he wants to overcome the grand obstacle between us and him, and it's called sin. Jesus did not pass over sin. Jesus did not ignore sin. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit made the decision within himself to absorb our guilt, and we get justified only when we believe in Jesus. But here's the problem. If our standing is in jeopardy, then you need to know that you're guilty to be helped. But our problem is our culture continually doesn't understand this. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, That it was never up to us. I love how the message was translated. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust in him uh, enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We, We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging, we've done the whole thing. And Paul says no. I was on Facebook this week for probably the thousandth time. (laughs) And uh, uh, Brett Allman was posting something and he put this quotation on It was relating to a different thing he's working on, but so applicable for today. It's a story about a man who fell in a pit, and he couldn't get himself out. It says a man fell in a pit, and he was stuck. And a subjective person came up to the pit and said, wow, I I feel you down there. And an objective person came along and said, well, it's logical someone would fall down there and walked away. A Christian scientist came along and said, well, you only actually think you're in the pit. (laughs) A Pharisee came along and said, well, only bad people fall into pits. The mathematician came along and calculated how he fell into the pit. The news reporter actually wanted the exclusive story of how he got in the pit in the first place. The fundamentalist came along and said, well, actually, you deserve to be in the pit. Confucius said, well, if you'd only listen to me, you wouldn't be in the pit. Buddha said, well, your pit is just a state of mind. The realist said, well, that's a pit. (laughs) The geologist told him to appreciate the rock strata in the pit. The inspector came along and asked, do you have a permit for this pit? (laughs) The professor came and gave a lecture on the elementary principles of the pit. The evasive person came along and avoided the subject of the pit altogether because they couldn't handle it. A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. The optimist said, well, it could be worse. And the pessimist said, well, it will get worse. But notice, no one got him out of the pit. See, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is he gets in the pit. And the power of the gospel is he takes us out of the pit. He doesn't lecture us. He doesn't have a conversation with us. He doesn't just say, well, you deserve it, and that's done and walks away. He doesn't say it's fake. He doesn't say it's a state of mind. No, he says it's pit. You're in there. It's real. And oh, here's what I'm going to do. Not just a lecture, not just a conversation. I'm getting in. I'm going to deal with the pit. I'm going to remove the pit. I'm getting you out of the pit. And notice, I'm starting the conversation. I'm ending the conversation. It's all me. That is the power of the Christian news. It does not play games. It doesn't obfuscate. It does not make things not true that are true or say things that are true or not true. It is honest, and then it gives us a solution. I'm going to stop at this moment before I keep preaching, and I want to say to many of you here and online, if you have never truly encountered the living Jesus, you've never made a relationship commitment to God, do it at this moment. You've heard the gospel at this moment. Church, this is when you start praying. No, really, start praying. And if this is you and you have never come to the position where you've said, I have faith in Jesus like that, 
You could be a Buddhist, a Baha'i watching this. You could be Hindu. You could be a secularist, an agnostic, an atheist. Whatever your identity is. But God is speaking at this moment. I'm one of his servants coming to you with good news. And you know this whole time as I've been speaking, you've, you've felt eerily disturbed. You've felt holy pressure around you. This is God's loving confrontation of your problems so you can be free. Pray this right now. This may be the first prayer you've ever genuinely uttered, but pray this now in church pray. Jesus, I've spent my life in the pit. I've lived without you my whole life, like really lived without you. Some of you right now praying are secular and saying, I didn't even believe you existed. Others of you have been, I've been deeply religious. But Lord, forgive me for living outside of your will. I accept Jesus like Paul did and Peter did. I do it now. I want to be justified. I I want to have right relationship with you. I say yes to Jesus as Savior and Lord. I turn from sin. I turn from my own self-work. And I say to Jesus, you have to do it for me. I can't do it. Forgive me for being so arrogant my whole life and thinking I could be okay with you by what I do. And forgive me also for the lie that I thought that maybe you didn't want me. At this moment, I turn and I say, I believe you're the Son of God. I I turn from sin. I say yes to your work on the cross. Justify me. Make me right. Declare me not guilty. And at this moment, I say to Jesus, yes. Come be the Savior and Lord of my life and make me new. I want what that Paul guy had. Come do it now. And I pray it for the first time for real in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I just want to say as I keep going, if you prayed that, please, we have new cards. Just go fill them out. They're at the desk and say, I I just genuinely think I met Jesus. Could you help me? And we'll do that. Last few things I want to say to the church and then I'm going to be done. Can everyone just hold on and hear this? Remember I just said that we need to understand not only the gospel, but we need to understand our condition. The problem is our culture has reduced morals down to what feels right and what feels wrong. Mark Twain used to say that I know something is right if it has a good result. Which, of course, implies that you actually have to try everything once to see if it's good or bad. And what's happened in our culture, what happens in your life and in Durham all the time is this. Listen closely. That we have the belief that acts are no longer right or wrong, but their results tell us if they're right or wrong. Can I say that again? We no longer believe as a culture things are inherently right or wrong. We believe the results they prove The results they do prove if they're right or wrong. The problem with that is that's not what God says. And so we are living among hundreds of thousands of people who desperately need to know God and they won't. And here's my request of you. I've been talking a lot about renewal, revival, and awakening. And we are praying for an awakening, not only in this area, in this church, but all churches. But we're praying that thousands of people become Christians. But let me assure you from Scripture and history, it will not happen en masse until God is actually welcomed by the church to begin to bring holy fear in Durham so people know their condition. Paul suddenly realized he needed Jesus when he realized his condition. What did Jesus say in Matthew? I've not come for the righteous, I've come for what? Sinners. See, 
Our role at C4 in this community, not only to love the poor and deal with social justice and proclaim the gospel, our role is to prophetically pray. And I mean that in the Old Testament sense, to stand in the gap and say before a holy God and all of these people, oh God, would you come in such unique power for a season that people know they're lost this. They think they're living in an oasis and they don't realize that they're in a desert. Oh God, we cry out to you, come and bring your holy fear among people in Durham so they will be understanding and they'll start being parched and they'll want something called a savior. Do you think that we have the power to overcome money and sex and power in Durham without a move of God? Not on your life. Do you think that we have the power to overcome the middle class values that had actually in bondage so many people? Not on your life. Do we actually think we have the power to remove principality, power, ruler, and authority that actually have dominion over our friends and our neighbors? No, we do not. But we have a God who can do all of that. And so here's what we need to do. And I'm asking you, and some of you roll your eyes and cross your hands because I keep talking about this, but I am right on this. We have to pray that God comes in such power in Durham that people know their need and they are moved to something called godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, which leads to life, but worldly sorrow brings death. I have no time for worldly sorrow. I have lots of time for godly sorrow. When people suddenly supernaturally become broken and say, oh, I'm separated from a God who wants to know me, what do I do? And we are prepared to say his name is Jesus. It has nothing to do with us. I'm asking you, I'm begging you, I'm even commanding you, please, I beg you, every day in your devotion life, pray for an awakening in Durham that is rooted in God's holiness and His power coming on this region and convicting people so they can be free. This is the heartbeat of what Paul is saying. Until he knew how deluded he was, he never would have looked for Jesus. But Jesus came for him. Pray for godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to life. Because our good news is good news. It is refreshing. It is what Steph led so well. It is freedom. There is freedom. There is freedom. The world cannot offer what we have. There is freedom in this place when we proclaim Jesus in His Spirit. I'm asking you every day, even if it feels boring and rote, say, Oh God, awakening in the area, hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, Lord, come supernaturally as you've done in history and bring such a presence of God that people know something's wrong and something isn't right and something is more. Because when the ground is cleared by God, Paul and Peter start showing up en masse. Know the gospel and don't be ashamed of it. Pray for something that we've never seen. Here's the last two things. As Christians... We've been set free. Don't go back to what we've been saved from. Don't go back. Don't live like something that you know is not you anymore. One person wrote, we delude ourselves if we think we can live immoral lives, shack up with partners who aren't our spouses and think everything's okay. We can't defraud others of money and just say, well, I'm good with Jesus. We cannot sit in a church and take no role in trying to deal with social ills. We cannot live in constant tension with our children or church members or family and say, well, I'm fine. Jesus and I have peace even though I hate my brother and my sister. 
Those who've been justified live justly. Those who've been made holy live holy lives. Those who've experienced God's love learn to love others. Those who've experienced God's forgiveness choose to forgive other people. Those who've been called out of the world don't play with the world. We as a church, we as people, doesn't matter who you are in this place, we're praying for an awakening that goes to to thousands of people, but revival is what we're praying for here. And revival is when everyday Christians say, I want the Lordship of Jesus, and I will not treat Jesus like a minister of sin and say, because I have grace, I can do what I want or, or, or not deal with things. We are called to live holier lives. And Paul would say to us if he was standing here today, and do not fear, because if you've done wicked things, God will forgive you. And he has given you his spirit so you can obey. You can obey. But if you are a person who continually runs from God, if you're stealing, and you think Jesus is just going to look by it, he'll forgive you, but he's not looking by it. If you're living with someone who's not your spouse, repent. If you are a person who is at war with other people in this church, deal with your stuff and deal with them. This grieves God. We have been set free as people, to live in power and life. And revival is when the things of God are welcomed and enjoyed and wanted. And all the hiddenness and all the secrets and all the justifications in the church drop because we become re-obsessed with the love of God because we know how wide and high and deep it is and that He loves us. And why would we ever want to go back to that stuff anymore? God invites us to give the good news. God invites us to ask him to do a great thing across this region. God invites us to actually no longer continually play games in this church with each other and others. He invites us to restoration and repentance. Why? Because it's rooted in this, and this is where I end. Because of what he's already done in us. We as a church are equal with Christ because of what he did at the cross. Let me say this again. Some of you have believed the lie that you are not, you are a lesser Christian for a hundred reasons. No, we have different roles and different gifts, but you are as equal with me and I with you. There is one level of field, and his name is Jesus. We are all justified in this place, that we are made right before a holy God. And by the way, what does that mean? That means we are no longer guilty, but we need to work that out with each other. We are crucified with Christ. We are dead to the law. And the most beautiful thing that is said so simply and so quickly and glibly in churches, but we see it here by Paul himself. Jesus loves us. No, he really loves us. God invites us to root our identity in this. More and more and more of this. And as we do this, we will become convicted of our complacency. And as we do this, we will treat other Christians better. And as we do this, we will begin to pray for God's new work in Durham because we will know how much we've been saved from and we will want it for others. Lord Jesus Christ, our request is that you would not relent. Oh, great passport. Oh, great key. Oh, great password. Oh, one who's brought us from death to life. Continue to move in C4 and do not relent. Let us know what we've been saved from. Give us great joy and love because of what's happened. Help us to reconcile and not treat your grace like a gift and then move on to something else. Oh God, for every person in this church and outside this church who keeps believing the lie that they have to prove themselves to you, kill that lie in Jesus' name. And oh God, we end by praying this. 
bring renewal in our lives, bring revival in this church, and bring an awakening in this area that cannot be produced but comes from heaven itself. May hundreds of thousands of religious and non-religious people know their need. May they know that you're out there. May they know that there is a way out. And may you come. And may thousands of people be transformed. And may the world be touched. We ask nothing less than this. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen.